We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Daniel Moore, and you're listening to a Hearing Architecture mini-episode. In this mini-episode, you're going to be hearing from Jeremy Schluter. Jeremy is a senior associate with Hassel Studio, and when we recorded this, Jeremy was a member of the committee developing a code of novation guideline for the Australian Institute of Architects. Through his work with Hassel, Jeremy has an in-depth understanding of how novation contracts can be beneficially used on high-profile projects. Here's Jeremy and I speaking about the Novation Guideline he's been working on for the Institute. All right, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. Let's start off with with your experience working at Hassel. So you're involved with the Institute Novation Guideline. Tell us about Hassel and, and your experience working there and how that sort of worked in with, with Novation. So Hassel is um, a large global design firm, as you would know, and the vast majority of the projects we work on um, across a number of different typologies uh, are almost exclusively novated. There would be some exceptions to that in some small private houses, some hospitality fit-out specific cafes or restaurants um, where we might be retained by the owner and some smaller bespoke projects like that. But they would probably make up or oh, maybe 5% of our projects, if that. So yeah, that, that would make 90 to 95% of our projects novated. And some of them are uh, very large, very complex, uh, probably the largest and most complex at the moment being the Melbourne Metro project. And so the context and the parameters of the novation agreement and the communication and the processes and procedures in place are absolutely critical to achieving success in a project like that, maintaining client relationships and fundamentally making a good place and getting a good outcome out of it. You said it really well just then how you use it on particular projects and not others. And I guess that's the thing for other people to know who might not know very much about contracts is that every contract is used for a specific use. Would you say that's right with your work? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, Novation has just become more and more popular. It started off, uh, in fact, in our consultation on the Novation, we've been talking to even people from Daryl Jackson's practice who worked on hospitals uh, back in the 80s that were novated. So it has been around for a while and it can achieve um, a great outcome if it's used in the right way. I think what's happened is a lot, uh, increasing number of apartment projects use Novation and some clients and contractors and um, arrangements, projects, what have you, started to change the parameters of novation, evolve it into something that increased the risks, if you will, of, of getting a quality outcome, maintaining safety and quality standards. And that's been a bit of a, a gap in the uh, landscape of novation, if you will, that the Institute, through its members and through its large practice forum, identified that there's actually no rules of novation out there. So really all we're trying to do with the code of novation is say, well, maybe we just need to set some general parameters so that everyone in the construction industry working on novated contracts 
can kind of understand and have that conversation about how are we going to innovate this and, and how's the right way to do it and therefore, you know, what should we avoid innovation? So I guess the guideline, like you're saying, if we bring in the guideline, it helps minimise risk for, for more people than maybe just the client. It sort of helps everyone muck in and start to discuss, okay, how can you get the thing that you're worried about? How can we tackle that? And then how can we also set this up so everyone's still able to contribute where they can best contribute to the end result? I think, Daniel, everyone understands that construction and procurement have those three tried and tested um, elements of time, cost, and quality. And I think what's happened in DNC Novated contracts is that the clients are using Novated process to manage the time and the cost, which thereby manages their own risk risk of time delays, risk of cost overruns, and the contractors have used that to their advantage through the process, not doing anything that's untoward and not not there's anything wrong with that. They are managing their risk in that novated contract. But even in the idea that the design team can be novated or essentially passed from the client to the to the contractor implies that kind of the design, which is that quality part, can be modified or changed to manage the cost and time. So it's almost implied in the idea of innovation that quality can be adjusted up or down. Um, And some things of quality shouldn't be adjusted up or down, like durability or safety or future maintenance or workmanship, sustainability. Local materials is another thing that we see quite often suffer through innovation. So these are the kinds of elements of quality that we think if we uh, better define how good innovation can occur, the overall procurement and construction industry will, will be better off. Right. So if we just tackle one of those three things, so the time aspect, when architects' responsibilities are novated to a builder, there are a couple of examples where, say, that happens at an earlier stage versus a later stage and what the outcomes might be of those two different scenarios. So um, that's one of the important elements that we hear time and time again from, from architects and members of the Institute that when they get novated is a critical determinant, if, if you will, at times of, of the quality that you can achieve. If you're novated earlier on in the process, you're much more reliant on your relationship with the contractor and the builder to maintain quality. So a lot of these processes run through the Institute's large practice forum, which has ambassador firms, the likes of Bates Smart, John Wardle, uh, Woods Baggett, Hassel, etc., Cox, Lions. So it's a shared set of experiences that we're trying to bring to bear to build this draft code. And one of those examples that's quite interesting is John Wardle's experience on the conservatorium in Southbank, the Potter Southbank Centre. Now that was novated at around 90% of construction documentation. So with the University of Melbourne, they took the design and the and even the technical detailing, construction detailing, really progressed it a long way, which allowed the university to really manage the quality of the outcome. And then they left the they they managed their risk to make sure that it was delivered on time and on budget by Lendlease as the contractor to really take over for that last ten percent of construction documentation and into the construction. Now, a lot of private development projects wouldn't necessarily run that model or be able to run that model, 
but there are models of novation out there is the important message there where you can novate a lot later you don't gain or lose any time or gain or lose any of your budget it's just a shifting of how you want to manage your risk and what emphasis you place on quality or wanting to really oversee the clarification and the articulation of the level of quality you want to see in the built outcome right okay so for someone who might not have worked on an ovation contract before or within an ovation contract, if it gets to the 90% and then the builder takes over the novation portion of the contract, does that mean the builder then actually draws the final 10% or let's say it happens earlier, let's say it gets to 25% completion, does the builder then draw 75% of the drawings for the building? No, essentially what happens is the builder becomes responsible for that design and they employ the architect and the consultant team to complete that work but they because they're responsible for it they're responsible for leading coordinating managing that process and to be honest daniel even within the architectural profession architects themselves sometimes forget that when you're novated to the builder, the builder does become responsible for the design and construct of the project, but they manage that ownership of the design by employing the architect. So the architect is still responsible for the design. It's just that their client, instead of being the owner, now becomes the builder. Right. Okay. So if they've now taken on some of that responsibility, sounds like this could be a good thing for the people who are involved in this type of project. You know, you've taken some of the responsibility off the architect. The builders are the ones who are really closely monitoring costs. Is, is that the sort of the best parts about Novation? I think so. They're the parts. So um, the code of Novation started where, where the Institute actually surveyed its members and that was back in April 2019 to really do a straw poll of, of how architects nationally were experiencing novation. And the resounding feedback was that architects wanted DNC novated contracts. They have benefits, and those benefits largely were improved buildability. You know, you have a relationship with the builder who can provide real time advice on how to build things, on what materials can be used, how they can be put together. And they become really hands-on in managing time and cost for, for the outcome. And that, that is um, often a good thing. However, 83% of the members, though, supported the establishment of a code of novation to set out some mutually agreed uh, approach to novation. And ultimately, we want this code to not be something just for architects and by architects um, with our interests in, in hand. I think for it to be really useful and powerful, we need ownership from contractors, clients, quantity surveyors, project managers, the whole construction industry sector, really, to agree to some a broad framework of some mutually agreed approach to novation. And that's the process we're currently going through. Great. Okay. So it's not, the guide isn't necessarily some sort of big scary thing where it's aiming to completely get rid of novation contracts, which a lot of people are really comfortable with working within at the moment. It sounds like it's going to be helping a lot of people along the way. Have other people been included in the process, so developers or builders, to make sure that their their needs are being met when the Institute comes up with this type of guideline? 
That's essentially the process we're going through at the moment, Daniel. Um, there's been a, a long process of consul- uh, consultation among architects and members of the Institute. It's been led from Victoria, but with a lot of consultation with the other chapters and members nationally. We've consulted with large practice, medium practice, small practice, regional practice to really make sure that it's representing a broad range of architectural views. We've had a lot of conversations with government and ministers and um, policymakers, and they are quite interested in this document. The other piece of context around the document, which is really important, is we see that the general public has kind of not really lost faith, but starting to lose a bit of confidence in the construction sector and in the construction sector's ability to deliver quality and and good outcomes. I mean, we all know about the flammable claddings, about the um, structural challenges in uh, defects and so on that are seen in the Mascot Tower, the Opal Tower in Sydney. These are all real big issues that we can try to deal with a little bit in creating a better set of relationships and codes of conduct almost um, or guidelines around novation. So with this draft that we now have from our consultations with the um, architectural profession, we're setting up a series of roundtables and conversations with developers, with um, governments, with builders, quantity surveyors, as I mentioned, um, engineers, project managers. The legal profession as well has a large role in drafting a lot of these contracts. So we really want to get their views and make sure they're an important part of the process. The other thing I would add is it's not what you were talking about before. We, we really don't want it to be a scary document. So it's not a legally binding document. It's really just, it establishes the rules. And some of those rules are really that you need to agree at the outset of being engaged as an architect of how you're going to do these things. So we don't we don't say you need to novate at 100% of design development or at construction documentation or at any one point. We just say right at the start, you need to agree and understand with all parties where you're going to novate and what's the right time to novate. And so it opens up a conversation with the client and the architect and the other parts of the project team as to how do we do this well and then we're all on the same page and then we can all kind of move forward uh, aligned together. And those conversations sometimes just don't happen. Mm, It seems like some people might be worried about ever taking on an ovation contract because they feel like once they get novated, if they're asked a question, the builder can just say, all right, yeah, thanks, thanks very much and not necessarily act on it. If that were the case, I mean, are there items like that which were kind of the low-hanging fruit when you started to put the guideline together that could do away with some of those misconceptions about this type of contract? Yeah, so there's one section of the code which talks about transparency. So it's a big issue for us in making sure that the procurement and, and construction process after novation is very transparent, transparent communication protocols, and uh, making sure that the architect, if the architect is lead consultant under the terms of their contract, then they need to have transparent access to the consultants, to the contractor, and ideally actually to the principal and the owner. There are some contracts that allow that and other contracts that don't. 
But really, I guess we're just questioning if, if the architect is to be the lead consultant and yet they don't have access to the cost plan or the construction estimates of how much things are costing or they're not at the PCG meetings um, where strategic decisions are made. It's very difficult for the architect to be the lead consultant or to guide the kind of value in the cost of the project if they're not involved transparently in those processes. Hmm. Was there ever a moment during all of the coordination of this guideline where you know someone other than the architects actually said, "Oh yeah, can you guys please put something together?" <laughs> you know, we'd love it if the architects did more in this area. Was there, a, or the, was there a part where someone said, "Oh yes, finally someone's going to put a document together so that we can clearly see uh, how how this can be refined?" Yeah, absolutely. And we've been surprised. I mean, there was a. A forum that um, the Institute had at the end of last year and there was a senior construction manager from Lendlease actually that was talking there and he kind of, I think, countered a lot of the misconception that it's the big bad builder that's driving innovation to the lowest common denominator. That's not what we're seeing and that's not our experience. They, they kind of said they're not afraid of this document. They see a lot of value in aligning expectations and they quite often say they behave in the way that based on their negotiations and agreements with the client. So they're really responding to what the client is asking them to do. And if some clients go into those contracts saying, we want zero risk and we want you to manage everything and we're willing to let this, this or this go, well, you can't blame the contractor for just acting on that and carrying out that contractual set of obligations that they negotiate with the client. That's kind of what's what's happening. Well, now that you've started this this process, and I mean, you've, this, the whole team at the institute has come really far with with this guideline. It must be very close to being finished. Is that right? Yeah, it is. It is. So we're talking with various layers of government and setting up a, a series of roundtables, which we're we'll rolling out over the next couple of months and consulting with the other engineering bodies. But I guess we we don't want to rush a piece of work like this. So we do want to make sure that we do it in a um, detailed and thorough way. And there's a lot of conversations we're having along the way so that we're able to tune it and make sure that it responds to any concerns that other people in the industry might have. The worst thing we could do is launch this document and then you know, lawyers or, or others say, hey, no, 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 that's not going to work. We're not on board. And then the whole thing could, could come undone very quickly. Absolutely. Well, I guess it must be really important to bench test it. I mean, have, have you started to use it as hassle at all um, just to see how effective it can be and if and if these guidelines stack up? Yeah, we, we have. We've had conversations with some clients and conversations with some project managers even. And again, much with the uh, much like the experience with the contractor at, at Lendlease, even project managers have agreed that they're not afraid of a document like this either. There is a bit of a vacuum as far as no is concerned and various people have filled that but they're quite excited at the opportunity of architects finding their voice in this conversation again and uh, I think the approach we're taking with trying to bring the industry with us is is the right one and seems to be resonating so far. I mean now that you've gone through such a detailed process with you know finding some of the bugs, uh, how to you know put together a guideline to make things better. When you look at innovation contracts next to something like uh, an ABIC contract, 
Do you still think that it's more project specific or are there some things where, oh, ABIC could take on some of these other suggestions that we're thinking about putting into the guideline for an ovation contract? I think the differences would be much smaller than you would expect, to be perfectly honest. I think a lot of people um, have a misconception of novated contracts. They're big, bad, ugly, they're hard, they're complex. It's, it's still architecture and architecture comes down to communication. It's communication of the design intent through drawings, through words, through images, through conversations, sketches, details, etc. so that a builder can build what you're wanting. That process is still the same under Novation and in actual fact the communication piece of how you communicate with the builder just becomes even more important. You build that relationship, you build that trust, you build a, a mutual respect and rapport and then you can still achieve really great outcomes. I mean, I think we can all agree that the Ian Potter Centre in Southbank is a, is a remarkable building, very highly crafted, beautifully refined and, and well built. And that is a novated contract. So it doesn't have to be something that we're afraid of. I mean, we, we built the, the Perth Museum in Perth with uh, collaboration with Hassel and OMA. That's a novated contract with Multiplex. Not yet open, but I'm sure once it is open, it's largely finished. A remarkable building with an international architect attached, delivered under a novated contract. Yeah, I think those examples that you gave are really great examples that novation contracts can be used with fantastic results. All right, Jeremy, well, thank you so much for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. I'm really looking forward to seeing the guideline come out because it will be a really great resource for architects to use uh, on, on their innovation projects in the future. So good luck with rolling that out. And yeah, we hope to speak to you in the future. Thanks very much, Daniel. Thanks for listening. This has been a mini episode of Hearing Architecture featuring Jeremy Schluter from Hassel Studio. If you'd like to hear more interviews with architects from around Australia, please keep listening to Hearing Architecture on your favourite podcast app. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.